Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today marks the beginning of a new season of Burning Books, this one entitled Declaration Centenary, where we're looking at books about Israel by writers from within and without, including Asaf Gavron, Orly Castell-Bloom, Dror Burstein, Zachary Lazar, S. Yizar, Yoel Hoffman, and Omri Bum. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English, some are contemporary, others classics. Today, we're looking at a book that is both contemporary and, I suspect, will in the future be regarded as a classic. The novel is Dancing Arabs, and it was the first book written by the widely lauded author Syed Kashua. A couple years ago, I saw Mr. Kashua interviewed at the University of Toronto, and though the discussion ranged widely, it kept coming back to this book, Kashua's debut. And when people lined up afterwards to share a few words with the author, it was more often than not about dancing Arabs. Several months later, I read the book myself, and I can understand why it elicited such strong responses. There are a few occasions when I am reminded why I do this podcast. Excoriating the terrible is definitely fun, but promulgating the excellent is far more rewarding. And this is one of those occasions. Dancing Arabs was published in Hebrew in 2002 and beautifully translated into English by Miriam Schlesinger. Part 1. Grandma's Death Equipment. Humor always takes me off guard. It's what endears me most to any piece of writing, and yet it's what I encounter least. I mean, humor not as in a stream of jokes or something to provoke laughter, though that quality is rarer still, but humor in the sense of an unexpected view of the world, something that wrong-foots you, a well-defined and succinctly expressed perspective, personality, philosophy. When I saw the title of the first part of this novel, Grandma's Death Equipment, I thought morbidity, and reading the first paragraph a few times, I saw the expectedly melancholy opening. I was always looking for the keys to the cupboard. I looked for them every time Grandma went to visit the home of another woman in the village who had died. The old brown cupboard was like a locked trunk with a treasure inside, diamonds and royal jewels. One morning, after another night when I'd sneaked into her bed because I was too scared to fall asleep, I saw her take the key out of a hidden pocket she'd sewn in one of her pillows. Grandma handed me the key and asked me to take her prayer rug out of the cupboard for her. I leaped out of bed at once. What had come over her? Was she really letting me open the cupboard? I took the key, and as soon as I put it in the lock, Grandma said, Turn it gently. Everything is rusty by now. Aging relative, death, keys, prayer rug, rust. We learn the narrator, a boy at this point, regularly slips into his grandmother's room at night for fear of thieves, monsters, and the dark. In the mornings, when he wakes up, he finds the mysterious cupboard at the center of this room unlocked, as the grandmother has already opened the doors to take out her prayer rug. Then, one day, she shows him where she hides the key and explains that on the day she dies, it will be his responsibility to open the door and tell his aunts that, quote, 
all the equipment is in the blue bag. Now I'm the one in charge of Grandma's death, the narrator says. She must know something I don't. Otherwise, what would she need death equipment for? And what is death equipment anyway? And just like that, humor enters the equation, succinctly expressed self-awareness on the part of the author, who chooses the portentous Grandma's Death Equipment as a chapter title, then admits that he doesn't actually know what Grandma's Death Equipment is. A brilliant beginning, and with each passing short chapter, most of the chapters in the novel are just a few pages long, Kashua writes with the same combination of simplicity and knowingness, lightheartedness and melancholy, distance and anger, in short, direct sentences. Dancing Arabs is a book in five parts. Tracing the story of the nameless narrator from boyhood in Tira, a sizable Arab village among other Arab and Jewish villages in central Israel, to adolescence and adulthood in Jerusalem. Early on in the story, the narrator makes a key discovery. During one of his grandmother's outings to local funerals, which is what she does for a good time, he breaks into the mystical cupboard and finds newspaper clippings and personal letters to do with his father. The boy can't read the newspapers because they're written in Hebrew, which he doesn't yet speak, but he can tell from the letters in Arabic that, at the time of writing, his father is in prison. Tell mother to stop crying. I will be released soon. Give my love to Sharifa, Fatan, Ibtisam, Sharuk, and the children. P.S. There are a few things I would like mother to bring on her next visit. A notebook, two pencils, a pair of socks, and two pair of underpants. Yours, your brother Darwish. We learn the father was jailed for bombing a cafeteria at a university, although it's never clear if he is guilty or not. But while this newfound family history ignites the narrator's determination to learn Hebrew and gives us a background against which to interpret his actions and attitudes, it is not central to the narrator's own story. By this I mean the author and his narrator are not going to delve into the past for its own sake, but rather see how that past affects the young boy in the present, affects how that boy becomes a man. So while politics in their various forms are ubiquitous in this novel, they are not presented with the aim of some kind of resolution or discussion in the usual sense, but as matters to be filtered through the experience of this particular individual. Particular and individual. This would seem to be redundant, but I'm trying to stress what I think is one of the author's key points. His protagonist is one of a kind, and so are those around him. The way each thinks, speaks, and acts is unexpected, causing the reader to constantly reevaluate what he or she knows or expects from the characters in this novel. Affecting that kind of reevaluation is something humor does well, as we can discern from another of the narrator's sharp-edged recollections of his youth. My father says there's no comparing Nasser and Sadat. The day Sadat was killed, we were on our way home from Tulkarm. They announced it on the radio, and father laughed. He said it was about time. He couldn't understand why Egypt had stopped fighting in 73. He even named my older brother Sam after the Russian SAM missiles, the Egyptians used in the October War. My father says Golda Meir had been on the verge of agreeing to surrender. It was all because of that son-of-a-bitch King Hussein. Too bad Nasser didn't have him killed, my father says, and then he puts on an Egyptian accent and tells us how Nasser once said that Hussein was a dog. You step on his tail in London to make sure he'll bark in Amman. My father doesn't understand how my brothers and I came out the way we did. We can't even draw a flag. He says kids much smaller than us walk through the streets singing PLO, Israel no, and he shouts at us for not even knowing what PLO stands for. 
Among other things we get from this memory is how the father, in addition to the loving and skeptical character he is shown to be elsewhere, can be a frightening person. At the same time, this short passage introduces the reader to one of the major themes of the novel, which is how the father's wars are in some ways incomprehensible to the son, who has to make his own way through the world, one that will be much lonelier than his communist nationalist fathers, who has tropes and groups and cliches to call on when needed. The way through this world for the son, on the other hand, is going to be far, far more complicated. The reader learns early on that the son is smart and a dedicated student, but it's a stroke of ingeniousness and good luck during a town trivia competition that gains the boy entrance to an elite school for Jews and Arabs in Jerusalem. The scene when he finds out he's been accepted to the elite school, a scene that illustrates a good chunk of his father's paradoxes, is golden. When father found out that everyone except me had received rejection letters, he was frantic. He started searching for their phone number. He talked to the principal, then called the regional superintendent, but nobody knew how to contact that school. Father said they'd pulled a fast one on us. There was no such school. The state of Israel just wanted to find out about the Arab school system. A few days later, it was on a Friday, I was working in the olive grove behind the house with father and my three brothers. Mother shouted through the kitchen window that there was a phone call in Hebrew. Father put down the bucket of olives and went running. He's a fast runner, my father and I ran after him. He didn't even take off his shoes and wound up tracking mud all over the carpet. When I entered, he had just hung up. He clenched his two fists, raised his arms, and shouted, Yes! Then he hugged me, beaming with joy. You're in, he told me. Being in at the new school means leaving home, but once the narrator is admitted, it never seems to be a choice. As the narrator's grandmother puts it in elliptical, diffuse fashion, quote, It's best you're going away a sad commentary on the town where she has lived her entire life. When the narrator's father exclaims, you're in, it's perhaps the last time the narrator can say he's in anywhere. Back in the village, he was part of the majority, an Arab among Arabs. He was distinct from them, but not estranged. Moreover, he had only met Jews sporadically or at second hand. Whether it was his father's boss coming over for dinner or in a day-long student exchange between local elementary schools. Now, in the new school in Jerusalem, the narrator, as an Arab, is the exception, almost entirely on his own. And if he doesn't feel sufficiently estranged, there's always the local population to rub it in. Part 3 of Dancing Arabs is entitled, I Wanted to Be a Jew. And this comes from the fact that, as the narrator points out, he looks more Israeli than most Israelis and is often mistaken for a Jew, which he takes as a compliment, a sign of success. But back in that first week at school, he was entirely out of his depth. The fish-out-of-water trope can easily be written in conventional fashion, and unless he bypassed this aspect of the story, Kashua was always going to have to cover this territory. Writing about that thing that you have to write about can often be a challenge. Some writers wear that sense of obligation in their writing, and it's clear the obligation is weighing them down. What Kashua does incredibly well, among so many other things, is writing the part of the story that you, as the reader, know is coming, recounting the injustices of the situation that you know are present, but catching you as a reader off guard through the vividness and pain of the description. There's never any going through the paces in this novel. 
Again, it's in the way Kashua uses humor, and by doing so, employing humor's doppelganger, devastation. Listen to these early encounters. That first week, I didn't know what to do with my tray in the dining room. I didn't know how to eat with a knife and fork. I didn't know how the Jews put the gravy on top of their rice instead of putting it in a separate bowl. I cried when my roommates found out I'd never heard of the Beatles and laughed at me. They laughed when I said Bob music instead of pop music. They laughed when I threatened to complain to Principal Beanhas instead of Pinhas. This is great, funny, but in its pettiness in the fact that these roommates cannot get over or perhaps focus on the meaningless details that, to their minds, make the possibility of friendship distant, it's tragic. If they can't get over my accent, what will they think of my manners? And then, if my manners, what about my attitudes, culture, ideas? In Kundera's little book, The Art of the Novel, Kundera talks at length about how the prosaic is what tells the story. Kashua masters the representation of the prosaic to such a degree that I rarely recognized it as such. Even as he writes about table manners and bus routes, it seems like he's probing the depths of the heart. As time passes, it becomes clear that going to school in Jerusalem means the end of the boy that ran free in the first sections of the book. War has begun. If you could meet Saddam Hussein, what would you ask him or say to him? Get out of town. And the narrator spends the evenings on rotating duty in the alarm room, in the strange position of needing to warn for an incoming bomb while hoping for the arrival of such a bomb, as it might portend Iraqi triumph. His sole Arab friend in the school, Adele, impeccably sums up the fantasias that pass for local logic. Adele said there was still hope and the Iraqis might win. They were just waiting for the Americans to come closer. The Iraqis had enough oil to set the whole gulf on fire. All the aircraft carriers would be burned. For a moment, the narrator would seem to have finally become the self-respecting, politically defined Arab man his father hoped he had raised. But as it turns out, it's another of the narrator's phases. As we turn to the latter half of the novel, it seems the narrator is destined to play different parts in different places until he reaches what he calls rock bottom. At this point, the humor that had borne this story and drawn its cast of unique characters is turned into something barbed, lacerating the narrator and the reader who has grown so close to him. In short, the person who's telling the story has come to hate himself and hate all the promise he once had. I mention this not to go too far into the subject or to describe what becomes of this narrator as he moves into his 20s, but to remark on what is a courageous decision by the author of this already courageous book. It's a courageous book because in a place where nearly everyone around the narrator takes sides, the only side the story takes is the protagonist's own. Neither nationalistic, nor anti-militaristic, nor anything in between. It shows no loyalty but to the particularity of a great character, that narrator. What makes it even more courageous is that the hope on which the first half of this book was built is sucked away completely in the second part of this book. It's one thing to say the narrator's decline is precipitous. It is, but it's another to say it's terminal. And that, at least, is how I read it. The narrator is a terminal case, and hope is gone. 
It amazes me still to think how important it seems to be, or is said to be, for a story not to lose all hope. And I don't mean in the sense of when I go to the gallows I want all the spectators to be greeting me with cries of hate. Even that, from the protagonist of The Outsider, is an expression of a wish. In reading Dancing Arabs, the narrator seems to stop wishing anything for himself. That is not changed by maturity, or marriage, or the birth of his child. Nothing stirs this once agile, still brilliant young man. He falls from anger to bitterness to cynicism to sentimentalism. The word desuetude seems about right here. The narrator is a distressed, uncared-for landscape. It's upsetting, and there is no third act in this novel to rescue him. I cannot underscore how often hope is regarded as a necessary spice of any upsetting tale. They say you can have misery, terror, calamity, but so long as there's hope in the end, well then. Here, Kashua foregoes that demand, breaks the formula, and creates a much greater novel for it. The proof of it, if it is needed, is in the great number of people at that talk who wanted only to reminisce with Kashua about the experience of reading Dancing Arabs. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books, Declaration Centenary Season, will be a review of Asaf Gavron's visceral, two-sided novel, Almost Dead. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the links to burning books i also enjoy getting your tweets nasty and nice i'm at burning books and you can also reach me at facebook facebook.com slash eric beck rubin my thanks to natalie matheson hakan osgon for the music peter cox executive producer of the show and as always go jays <laughs>